If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. From contraception and consent to sexual identities. What do we get wrong about the sex lives of people in the past? Well, in her new book, Sex, Lessons from History, the historian and broadcaster Fern Riddell addresses some of these misconceptions and offers her opinions on what we can learn from looking at sexual culture through history. I spoke to Fern to find out more. So... In the book, Sex, Lessons from History, you take you take a pretty wide-ranging look, really, at sexual culture over time. So what do you think are the main things that we've got wrong about the history of sex? Everything. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it really is one of those things where if you look back at what you learned in school, perhaps what you were told by family or friends and and how and then by magazines and then by culture and TV and drama and everything, how we have built our own sexual culture and how we have viewed the sexual culture in the past, there's so little that anyone has got right. Because we I think we tend to have this this belief that everything we do we do for the first time you know we are the first we're modern we're the most progressive all of these things and actually when you look at the past that isn't the truth at all so one of the things about sex lessons from history and and this book is it's to show it's to show everyone that there is nothing new in terms of identity especially and everyone has a place in their past you know everyone this history belongs to everyone who however you identify you know that's really modern language to say however you identify because people in the past didn't think in terms of what's my sexual identity or what's my gender identity they just thought about well this is who I am this is how I feel this is who I am going to this is how I'm going to live my life and I think that freedom from the past that ability to not live by binary definitions, not believe you had to fit into a box, is one that we really struggle to understand existed. Because every time we talk, especially about gender in the past, it's that men and women lived in very specific rules. They weren't allowed to do certain things. It was all because of their gender, you know, this, this. And that, I think, has become a received belief that we really need to challenge. Mm. Um, I think that a lot of the issues that we're debating at the moment as a society, so issues of gender, um, consent, 
the role of technology in sex, they're all things that you're you're looking at in this book as well. Do you think that reflecting on the history of sex can help us with the debates we're engaged in at the moment? Or do you think that we should see the past and the present as two separate things? Well, that's a really interesting question because one of the one of the points of this book is to really remove people's opportunity for bigotry. Because I think a lot of the the debates that we're having at the moment, especially to do with people who don't feel gender binary definitions match their existence or their experience, um, and to do with people who are living trans lives, a lot of those debates, whenever we see them getting incredibly um, kind of violent in the press, it's normally from people who believe that trans people have never existed before. And I think one of the most interesting things about kind of going back through the history of this is uncovering that the first time anyone thought of trans people as being um, a mental health disorder was from America in the 20th century. You know, that's the modern concept. And then, then if you go back through history, well, we told people who were homosexual that they had a mental disorder. So I find it very hard as a historian to look at the attitudes surrounding trans people's lives and right to live that I find it really hard to look at that and not see the exact same language, the exact same attitudes that were being perpetrated against people who were gay in the past. So I... In terms of, of finding kind of keeping the past and present separate, we have modern issues surrounding these debates. What history shows us is that people have always existed. And that's a really important bit of armour. It's a really important weapon, I think, in the arguments from people who feel in today's society that trans people don't have a right to exist or should be relegated and restrained and restricted in their lives. I think that a lot of histories of sex more traditionally have focused on legal or religious prescriptions or the work of scientists or the work of um, sexologists. But you're more interested in sexual culture, really, is it fair to say? So we're talking about songs, commercial products like condoms, for example, literature, I mean, even bawdy jokes, for example. How does that give us a different perspective on the history of sex? I think it's really, I think this is something I've always done with my historical research. I get very bored of um, uh, understanding or, or people proclaiming that you can only understand the past through the legal, religious, or um, uh, kind of the systems of power of the day. Because I think if you look at our government today, there are an awful lot of people who would say their choices do not represent them and do not do not show the world and their choices that, that, that they personally want to do and want to make. So I, I, I think as someone who likes to work on people rather than structures, that's what interests me. That's what matters more to me because structures are always, systems of power are always by a very small number of people. They're not, but they're not actually the general population. They're not actually showcasing you what was normal or or kind of widespread at the time they're just showing you a very specific thing so i i really like to do history that looks much more at the broader population and and ordinary people who are just getting on with their lives regardless of the government regardless of what the church says church says regardless of kind of what the systems of power are saying 
And when you do that switch, when you switch from those things, you suddenly find a completely different historical world. You know, the church might be telling you that you can only have sex on a Sunday. I'm going to tell you, 95% of people will go, not a chance. You know, they're going to, they're not going to, in the privacy of their own home, that's not going to apply to them. And I think, I think obviously they didn't say you could only have sex on a Sunday, but that's the shift that you see. And I I just love finding the, the ordinary people's experiences because that's where you do find gay lives and trans lives and lesbian lives, bisexual lives, you know, everything kind of being lived as normal. And that doesn't mean those people in the past didn't face difficulty and tragedy, but they often face acceptance, acknowledgement, and we haven't ever really shared that widely before. We haven't acknowledged it ourselves. But that obviously makes your job as a historian quite a lot harder because it's quite easy to look at a statute book and say, okay, this is the law and what it said. It's a lot harder to find sources that really reflect lived experience. And a lot of these sources for sexual culture, you know, they were never meant to be studied several centuries down the line, whether they're ephemeral or they're oral culture or they're meant to be hidden from view. So as a historian, how are you getting to grips with that material? Well, I disagree with that mm. completely, Ellie, because it's that's not that's not the case in, in thinking that these are that anything in here is something that was hidden from view. I have not gone in my previous book, I uh, in Death in Ten Minutes, I um, was working in an archive. The archivist showed me an um, unpublished autobiography. That was a case of taking a source that hadn't really been looked at and and exposing it for the first time. That's really exciting to do as a historian. This book, this book, I went to really public records. You know, I went to songbooks that were published that have been published for two hundred years consistently. I went to the newspapers. I mean, there's so much in this that is first-hand accounts from people who had their words published in the newspapers. And you have to remember the newspapers were on everyone's breakfast table. You know, we've got nearly 300 years of print culture that was on everyone's breakfast table. This is not something that is unique or or different. So the purpose of this book and the source material that it is drawn from is the ordinary and everyday. It's actually really exciting as a historian to be able to sit here and say you think I've done something special and new and ferreted away in the archive and been like look at this amazing jewel of a source I found I haven't I've literally just gone back to the past and gone here's the ordinary every day if you know there's an amazing case of a young girl a court case that's covered in the newspapers that's in the you know, the Old Bailey archive, which of course, remember, the proceedings of the Old Bailey were printed and handed out to everyone. It's like reading your daily tabloid. That's what they were. There's this amazing um, uh, young housemaid called Emma Devine, and she's about 13, 14. And she gets hauled up before the courts because her her um, her master, her you know boss, accuses her of stealing. And it's a very ordinary court case, one that gets covered in the paper word for word. And she's you know she's she's been hauled off stealing the judge sort of going oh you have you stolen this coin and and also when your rooms were searched we found an erotic you know a naughty song a bodies how did you come to have this how dare you know this this sort of filth what how did you get it who gave this to you what happened and the whole trial becomes not about the fact that she might have stolen some money but that she is a 13 14 year old girl had a bit of pornography under her bed and I love that this is the kind of the story. And 
Emma stands up for herself and she's like, yeah, of course I had it. Me and my friend, we went and got it from the man who stands at the corner who sells it to anyone. Because it's this, what this shows us is, you know, a Victorian 14-year-old teenage girl looking for sexual knowledge, wanting to find it, accessing it, as she says all teenagers do. And it's that, that's what this book is about. It's about showing you sexual knowledge was not something that was hidden. Sexual knowledge was everywhere. Everyone talked about it. Everyone knew about it. So there's stuff on flirtation, there's stuff on kind of the sweet side and courting. And then there's all the stuff that actually really makes a difference. Like the School of Venus, you know, this is um, uh, an amazing book from the 1600s about two women as a play, literally talking about how to have sex what sex is like, what it feels like, what, what, you know, what it's like as a woman, what a man's genitalia looks like. And Samuel Pepys writes about this book. It's finding all of those connections. It's finding the reality of what is just normal, everyday sexual culture to show it wasn't a secret in the past. So why do you think that that misconception has has come up. You know, there is a misconception that in the past everybody was incredibly sexually repressed, apart from maybe the Romans and Greeks. And But since then, it's all been a case of hush, hush, let's never speak about it and pretend it doesn't exist. Where do you think that's come from? I, that is actually, for me, is something I've spent a lot of time as a historian trying to understand. And I think now, kind of 10, nearly 15 years into my career, I I really see it as an as an what becomes incredibly incredibly problematic is the early 20th century. The early 20th century, with I think the combination of the two world wars, with the pressure that that puts on people's gender identities, and also the horror of uh, of world war and the lot the huge loss of life plus a pandemic. You know, I think that really loses it restricts and restrains people a lot. And when they try to build their societies back, they build them back in weird ways. Because when you look at the past, there is this massive shift, really kind of post-Edwardian, post kind of, it's almost a, a reaction to the 20s and the 30s to really restrict and restrain knowledge, to kind of classify people, there's a huge, a huge push into the theory of the mind and the science of the mind and the medicine of the mind. But what that does is also medicalize a lot of people's attitudes as something that is psychiatric rather than just normal. And it, it, I think the combination in the 1930s of a push of this kind of serious medicalization of sexuality which comes from the work of the sociologist of the sexologist, which comes from kind of the the real push of psychiatry, and then from the idea, and, and unfortunately the wrapping up of all of that within the the sudden kind of incredibly destructive shift of of eugenics, and which came out of the birth control movement in the nineteenth century, which was actually really had moments of being really powerful and really kind of female. Um, fe feminine independence and women's independence orientated, that gets lost really in the 20s and the 30s where it becomes incredibly restricted and restrained. So for me, 
Our problems today are born in the late 20s and the early 1930s. And you see all of this messaging and all of this kind of destructive imagery combining to really remove sex from ordinary people and remove that ownership and that knowledge and that joy and make it something clinical and medical and combined with, uh, you know, the, the emerging eugenics stories. So I, I really do blame our problems not on any century prior to the 20th, because when you dig into the 19th century, the 18th century, the 17th and the 16th century, my God, those people had a great time and they, they embraced sex and they were really concerned about it and how to have it well and how to connect. I think that's so important. We really have lost that, I think, in, in the 21st century, the understanding that sex was about connection. It'll be smelly, it'll be noisy, it'll be funny, but it'll be incredibly joyous and erotic and deeply erotic. And I think the sanitization and the medicalization of sex that happens in the 20th century we are we are still so hung up on today. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And you know that, of course, all the ag- agricultural almanac for housewives would include instructions for how to make your own sheep intestine condoms. Um, talking about that celebration of sex, which obviously is such a big theme in the book, you mentioned, obviously, the, the amazing sources that appear throughout the book and some of them in quite a lot of detail. Um, so I just wonder if you could share with us maybe a couple of the sources that really celebrate sex in a way perhaps that we might be surprised by today. There's so much and there's so much to find joy in and there's so many stories that kind of make me laugh and make me go, oh my God, that's, you know, that's hilarious and brilliant. I think the stories that really stand out for me are kind of the... The ones that are complex and are complicated. So I do, one of the things that I've um, I've become really passionate about is looking at um, a source material for our gay history. I think when you look at kind of the incredible outpouring of love and grief that came with It's a Sin, Russell Davis' incredible um, uh, exploration of, of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s here in the UK, there were so many gay men, especially young gay men, who said, you know, I, I hadn't, this is, this is my recent history. I had no idea. Like, we're not taught about this. You only hear about it. And when you talk about um, the history of of what gay men's lives have been like in the past, for most people who are gay, the, the feeling and the experience and certainly the received understanding is that that is one solely of persecution, solely of pain and solely of, of terror and horror. And one of the things that I found so amazing, especially as a 19th century specialist, is the work that I've done on the Victorian records, looking through the Old Bailey, finding kind of uh, the stories that are there. It absolutely blew my mind because we have, instead of this kind of period of intense, horrific persecution and horror uh, and um, kind of destruction and removal of gay men, the 19th century, the Victorian period, is actually very different. We start out with the removal of the death penalty for sodomy. We start out with camp, huge campaigns, really uh, kind of incredible 
things that are done by magistrates and by the people who are in charge to sort of say we should not be giving the death penalty for this anymore you know you know this is it's wrong and we get a period really from the 1830s through to the 1890s every time i've found a consensual case now that's not someone who has committed an act like an assault on a child or an assault on another man or um or abused an animal which also falls kind of under the sodomy laws those those cases i don't count when you find a consensual case where it's clearly two men who are gay who have been in a relationship together who've had a sexual encounter every every single time they come before the courts pretty much they are found not guilty that was incredible to me because it completely shifted my understanding of our legal system it completely understood our my understanding of how society saw these men because you have to kind of you understand it from the police point of view of the law says i have to arrest this person if i see them doing this thing and then they get to court and the judges go okay well this is where i get to decide if this is something that should be prosecuted or not well i'm not going to because you haven't hurt anyone you know and you find that if if two men who are clearly in a relationship together are brought before the courts the only thing they will ever be prosecuted for prosecuted for is not the act and often they've been caught in the act but it's not the act it's for getting caught in a in a park or a field you know in a public place and and so it's a very quick kind of slap on the wrist and off you go in other cases they're often found if they are found guilty their sentences are then um uh commuted you know they're they're or they're pardoned and if you have that kind of legal backdrop where the legal system itself is not prosecuting not taking those convictions and not putting those people in jail then you also start to unpick what the reality of sexual culture and gay culture was at this time and that's when you find the real lives, the people like um, Edward Bryn Hodge, who really at the end of kind of the 19th century becomes someone who is prosecuted for being a gay man in a very rare successful prosecution solely because he he pleads guilty, which doesn't happen very often. And is alone, you know, he's not prosecuted with anyone and he goes to New York, is prosecuted there for being gay as well, comes back to the UK. But when he comes back, he becomes a journalist and he absolutely fixates on stories that are of homophobic murders. There's an incredibly tragic kind of murder of a young gay artist, which was another moment of kind of looking at the press and going, well, this is amazing. A young gay artist is um, murdered by a man he's picked up. And the press coverage of his death and of his life as a young gay man is incredibly sympathetic. You know, it's not at all written about as, you know, he deserved it or disgusting, you know, anything like that at all. It's incredibly sympathetic about his life. And Edward is a journalist. He, he, he looks at this story. It's something that means a lot to him. And, you know, it's unpicking those lives. We kind of see the emergence of when, when to be gay is made illegal in 1885 with the Labuschere Amendment, which is the first time a gay relationship, the act of holding hands, kissing your partner, you know, falling in love with another man is ever illegal on our statute books. 
there is this pushback from the gay community to to try and find a way of altering that and and fighting back against it and it takes you know it takes until um uh the 20th century for us to get rid of that but i think that that the horror and the damage that that period at the end of the 19th century does has become the received historic identity for gay men today and it's actually far more exciting and far more enjoyable to be able to showcase gay lives in the past where they lived and were acknowledged and were accepted because no one should have a one-dimensional view of their history I think I think we need to see it in in actuality while we're talking about same-sex relationships and encounters um I think you know a common misconception is that lesbianism has basically been invisible from the historical record but you prove pretty categorically that obviously that is not the case here where are some of the places that we can find lesbians in the historical record? Where are all the lesbians? I yeah, I, I certainly I think that's certainly how I wrote that chapter. That's the chapter Women Loving Women. And I it was a real joy to write because it was it was one that just constantly surprised me, mostly because I was building on the work of so many other historians and the, the the kind of the knowledge that this work is there, this research is there, these stories are there and have been there for some time, but they just haven't made it out of academic circles into ordinary history books. That's where a lot of our problems are. It's not that historians haven't been doing this work. It's that they haven't been, it hasn't been allowed to break through into ordinary everyday history books, which is what sex lessons does. A lot of people will say to me as a Victorianist, ah yes, well lesbians were banned because Victoria didn't Queen Victoria didn't believe they existed. We've got no evidence for the fact Queen Victoria didn't think lesbians. You know, it's just it's one of those things where you're like, no, that's just that's just not true. Because we know from the past that there were that lesbian identities have always existed and do matter. And a lot of the lesbians who are in this chapter are problematic women. They can be callous and they can be quite uh, difficult, especially um, I have an abbess who was basically uh, secretly abusing her entire nunnery by taking them to bed of an evening and sort of saying, this is God, God is telling me to do this to you. That story is really shocking in itself. But the fact it even exists at all and was recorded is really important I think what this should show us is when you look in the past for people who are like you, you are never going to find your perfect partner. You are never going to find someone who who holds up the identities and the ideas that you want, but that doesn't mean that they aren't there. It, the past is just not a perfect place. The book is such a a kind of pick and mix of different things that, that there's so many different things I could ask you about. But one of the things you talk about is sex work. What have some of the controversies surrounding selling sex been over time? When we look at people in the past, the acceptance of sex work and the acknowledgement of sex work is one that was very common. Really the shift into seeing sex work as anti-feminist comes in the middle of the 19th century. Feminism had had the opportunity to kind of take sex workers in and stand with them and build a movement that supported and acknowledged sex work 
or to see it only as a form of abuse, only as something. And then the women who were in it as, um, in many cases, idiotic, stupid, and as women who, who needed to be rescued. I think today we understand far better that that isn't the case for, for many women in sex work, that there is that is an industry that includes those with agency as well as those who are trafficked and, de- and abused. And it's it's a complex area that people have very strong opinions over. When you look at the past, the kind of the way in which sex work stands out for me, especially in our mo- more recent past, if you think kind of the, the the amazing fights by sex workers to be heard and seen in kind of the 1970s. And one of the things I love about looking in the past is often the women who are involved in sex work are the ones who are the most free in terms of finding some form of independence writing down their thoughts, their ideas and their attitudes and making a name for themselves. And that's that's tough for a lot of people who want to view sex work as purely victimhood. I think the one of the worst things we do as historians is denying agency in the past just because it doesn't fit our view of what agency should be just because we feel that we disagree with someone's choices somehow they aren't that means they don't have agency and freedom and this is where my love of the problematic comes from i think if you you have to allow your subjects to be free if that's how they felt they were you, you can we can write about it and we can theorize and we can sort of say i disagree with that but you can't erase it. You can't, you have to acknowledge it and you have to say, you know, I may personally disagree with their choices now as a modern, you know, 21st century woman, but I can't ignore the fact they felt that choice made them free. Something else that I wanted to ask you about was contraception, because I think for a lot of people, the story of contraception is, you know, Mary Stopes birth control campaigning in the early 20th century and then the the pill in the 1960s. But you highlight that it goes back far, far further back than that, doesn't it? I think one of the things I love about the history of contraception is the moment someone says to you, uh, sex was repressed in the past, no one talked about it, no one did it, you say, you know, there was a condom shop in like the 17th and 18th centuries in London. And you know that that we have first-hand accounts of men who would take their, you know, their sheep cut condoms to be washed by the laundry woman. That this is, and you know that, of course, all the ag- agricultural almanacs, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, for housewives would include instructions for how to make your own sheep intestine condoms. When you kind of put those facts in front of people, and when you make clear that contraception was something that was written about and discussed by men and women, more importantly, by women, you know, Annie Besant, 1877, publishing a book and going to court to defend it on every form of contraception that was happening in this in this period. That, for me, the history of contraception is one of the most important things to understand when you want to know what's the attitudes to sex in the past. Because if you think sex is only about re- 
you know, reproduction. If you think sex only happens when the church says it's okay to have babies, why was everyone obsessed with how not to get pregnant, how to have sex safely, how to make sure you weren't going to have sex and get an STD? I mean, these are not modern things. You can trace them all the way back through not just centuries, but eons, thousands of years. So that for me, the history of contraception is incredibly important. It, it should be taught in sex ed lessons in school to show that consent more importantly, because let's, re let's remember, as far as the Victorians and the 18th and the 17th centuries were concerned, consent is the most fundamental part of any sexual encounter. It's incredible. It must not happen any other way. And that contraception was absolutely celebrated and known and acknowledged, whether that was the withdrawal method or condoms. Being safe, making sure you're not transmitting an STD, was as much an issue to someone in the 16th and 17th centuries as it is to today. Um, you mentioned their consent. And obviously, the conversation around consent has has changed even within the last, last five years. Um, how have ideas about consent and its importance or significance changed over time? That's a really tough one. And it's one of the ones that I find as a historian is the most difficult to unpack. Because when you look at a lot of the literature, and by that I mean kind of the guides for married couples, the things that were printed um, and shared as pamphlets, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century, because I've used a lot of print culture and that's not stuff that's kind of like a secret pamphlet. That's stuff that was widely shared, widely printed from, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And in all of these things, consent is absolutely key there's a wonderful um, pamphlet that I have I first saw in the Museum of London Archive a long time ago from, that's printed in 1863 and it's on the art of begetting handsome children. And it's obviously been taken, it's it's actually, a, it's kind of ripped from a 16th, 16th century, 17th century physician's guide to sex that has been constantly printed and constantly kind of shared and repeated across the globe for, for centuries. And the whole purpose of the art of begetting handsome children is to tell you how to how to have sex for the first time on your wedding night from the art of foreplay to why it's important to how to make your wife have an orgasm. And the thing that is absolutely key to this, and it says it, you must never surprise your wife, never, never like pounce on her, They're always kind of, because if you do that, it damages the womb. The womb doesn't have time to relax the womb and then you're, you're not going to get pregnant. So everything that I have ever read to do with sex, to do with sexual culture, to do with having good sex, to do with having safe sex across the centuries has been fundamentally tied to the idea of consent because it was absolutely believed, and this is kind of one of the most important facts that when I first learned it um, about 10 years ago really blew my mind, that you could not get pregnant if the woman didn't have an orgasm. This was the standard, this was like the, the, like the first bit of sex education anyone learned in any century before us was the importance and the power of the female orgasm. But because the female orgasm was so important, consent was equally important. Because if you're not comfortable, if you're not happy, if you're not relaxed, these are all the things that people felt were key to making sure 
a woman was going to have an orgasm and therefore get pregnant. So I, I really do think, you know, when we look at the past and we look at consent, it was absolutely tied to joy and connection. They're kind of the wholehearted embracing of the physicality and animalistic joy of sex that happened in every century before our own. We really are, we've really lost out and we're really missing out on, I think. That was Fern Riddell. Her book, Sex, Lessons from History, is out now, published by Hodder and Stoughton. I spoke to Fern for the August issue of BBC History magazine, which went on sale yesterday and also includes features on the French Revolution, Oliver Cromwell, the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and the Benin Bronzes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again on Friday for an unexpected story from the history of running. Mm-hmm.